we are barreling toward the end of the year. You may notice I have a deeper, huskier voice than usual. I've been sick. You know, who hasn't been sick? It's absurd, a little bit tiring. I'm ready to be well again. It feels like winter is that way. I typically have something on hand to, you know, like a hanky blow my nose into all winter long. There is really no time when I am just, you know, nasally free, breathing clear. Uh, It's been, you know, 10 degrees or colder for a week, and it's supposed to be that cold all the way through Christmas. Christmas, there's something. Merry Christmas to you. You'll have one more episode from me this coming Wednesday, and that's it until after Christmas. I won't be taking any break for the holiday. I'll give you podcasts, more podcasts, actually. That's notable. You'll be receiving more podcast drops over the next couple of weeks as I do the car dealership version of Everything Must Go, Clearance. All the episodes I have in the queue are going to be released between now and January 1st. Or my name isn't Jody J. Sperling. Did I mention you can still buy my book as a pre-order? The seven-figure marketing mindset for novelists. It's the mindset that I'd really like you to get. There are typos in the book. Not too many of them. It was professionally edited. Not to the level that it should have been. I made excuses. We all make excuses. This is a long intro. It's a bit... uh, What's the word I'm looking for here? Discombobulated. Well, anyways, I've been in confessional mode lately because... I realize that I'm just another traveler on the road with you right now, trying to figure things out. I hope that's inspiring. I feel uplifted, really uplifted. And so again, Merry Christmas to you. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Martha Ann Toll. Hey, I'm the Reluctant Book Marketer, and I've got just one question for you. Do you see your novel as a million-dollar asset? Because if you don't, and you want to, you're in the right place. This is the only show for novelists who want to shift their mindset away from fear and toward abundance. Because you can sell more books than you ever dreamed when you believe in what you're doing. Um, I just listened to Stephen Pressfield talk about his first novel he wrote when he was 54. Um, and I know that you came to novel writing later in life. So that's where I want to start this conversation with you is, is share a little bit about what it's like to say, okay, I'm going to have an act two here and not, and, and for you, it's actually kind of an act three, but, um, or five, uh, it's, it's a very robust act five. Thank you. Well, I actually have been writing my whole life. Um, So there, I have different ways of thinking about this. I grew up in a a household that valued books and writing a lot. My mom was a copy editor and my, she worked at home. So there are always galley proofs all over the dining room table. My dad was a lawyer, but a fantastic writer and they were extremely rigorous about their writing instructions. So I have spent basically no time in a classroom, but anything I learned about writing. I learned from my family, my parents. Um, But I didn't start writing fiction in earnest until around 1999. My mom died suddenly. And I was working full time in social justice. 
And I always had wanted to write fiction. I felt like I had a lot of words and not much plot. And I had mm. had very writing intensive jobs. I trained as a lawyer. I was working in social justice. I was constantly, I spent my days writing. But the fiction just started pouring out of me. So I feel like I've been writing fiction now for close to more than 20 years, um, which um, is not my whole life, but it's a long time and it took me a very long time to get a novel published. And my story mm. is similar to other people. Everyone said, you have to get an agent. So I got an agent for a novel. She couldn't sell it. So I wrote another novel. I got an agent for that novel. She couldn't sell it. Wrote another novel, which is Three Muses. Got an agent for that. And she couldn't sell it. So I ended up selling Three Muses on my own um, through winning a contest that came with publication and an honorarium at Regal House Publishing. Wow. So it was a long journey, um, even starting writing in my 40s. Wow. So I have uh, a, a friend that I've made over Twitter, Dr. Sheena Howard. Shout out to you, Sheena. You're awesome. Um, she is going through kind of a similar process right now, looking for an agent. Um, and it makes me curious to hear and to know uh, her level of accomplishment and see almost a she'll be fine with me saying this almost a level of groveling when it comes to trying to find somebody to represent your book and get it into the hands of the almighty God. That is the publisher. Uh, you went through it three times. And I think in the words of George W. Bush, fool me once shame on, on, on you fool me twice. What well, ain't going to happen. So, <laughs> so um, you, you went a third time. <laughs> well, I definitely, um, I want to share this story because I was in what I can only describe as a form of grief, deep despair. Um, but I was, if I was an outsider looking in, I noticed that I wasn't giving up, that I was still writing. And I thought that had significance at the same time. It felt like the tree falling in the forest. If mm. you need a reader as a partner and if you're not getting published, you're not getting read. So that yeah. was painful. Yeah, it's it's very painful. Let's stop there for a second, because I think that that's one of the most near and dear things to my own heart is readers. That's what I've always wanted. Um, yes, I want money because I want to be able to survive. I have three kids. I'd like them to see Hawaii or uh, Machu Picchu. Uh, and I'd like my wife to get out of the country. She's never been before. But really, at the heart of what I'm doing, if people would eagerly read my book that would feel like it to me talk to me a little bit about that for you sure well i am an avid reader i um learned how to read in school i wasn't one of those genius early readers um but as soon as i could read i never stopped reading i, yeah. I won't say i'm not exactly a binge reader but i read everything and there were a lot of books in my household growing up i read all the classics i graduated high school in january six months earlier and thought oh i better read dostoevsky i don't know if i had no clue what i was doing but i just like yeah. pretty voracious and reading is something i always have wanted to share 
with my friends. It's a huge part of my life. And most of my friends are serious readers, not all of them. It's always been, even as a little girl, my two closest friends were readers and we'd swap books and go to the library together and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so this is a, this is a hard question because one of the early earliest things you hear as a writer is write what you want to read. And that is mm-hmm. never computed with me. Partly because I'll read anything, and I Lovely. read nonfiction, memoir, fiction. I really have very eclectic tastes, so I wasn't really sure what that meant. Um, but I did feel that if I was going to spend the time writing, the thing that is most important to me is to reach readers on an emotional level. I, I was very cl- I'm very clear about that part of it. Good grief. It's literally like you looked at the notes on my desk that I've just been like thinking about and pondering for months now. There's something broken about what people are telling us to do because I'm the same way. And I speculate that a lot of people listening right now are the same too. There are those who exclusively read sci-fi. There are those who exclusively read fantasy or like my wife, she almost never steps away from romance novels. um, And she's a voracious reader. However, you and I, and I think a lot of people listening, read widely. I've read romance, romance. I've read erotica. I've read literary. Um, I think before we started recording, I was mentioning a couple of authors from different genres. Like, there's no end to what I will read. Biography is lovely. Uh, memoir is great. Um, there's there's really no limit to it. And if if you're that person who you love to read everything, how in the world do you ever figure out who might be interested in reading your work? Because there's no clear influence. That's such a good question. And I, I worked with somebody early on after I uh, received the publishing contract to try to help me figure out who my readers were, where they are. I don't have a good answer to that. Um, I, I guess what I think is his suggestion was basically who do you know who reads the same kind of stuff that you're writing? And I did think about that a lot. And there are a lot of authors who don't look like me at all, who don't have my profile, who really, really speak deeply to me. So I thought about who likes those books. I thought about uh, my book is nominally a love story between a Holocaust survivor Mm. and a ballerina. It's called Three Muses. And, um, Certainly, there's a huge market for people who want to learn more about the Holocaust. And also, there are people who love to read about dance. Mm. But still, my book is meant to be read by anybody. You don't have to know anything about either event. It's not, um, it's meant for, for you to get engaged with the characters and have an emotional experience. Yes. I'm so glad you said that. I just wrote down emotion because that was the other piece of your comment that uh, I wanted to return to. And by the way, I really, and there's some ways I wish that I had this voice when I'm sick normally, because I sound so much more authoritative to my own head at the moment. (laughs) 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 Um, There's a point in this podcast. uh, I've been going for about a year right now. You're almost exactly my one year guest, but uh, there. Congratulations, by the way. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's (laughs) exciting. It's been a fun evolution. I think that most people do feel that it's been a fun evolution. We've grown um, consistently. And so that's been really nice. Um, 
there's a point in this podcast. I had a guest on named Parastu Madawi and uh, she self-published her memoir and she, she talked a lot about uh, her book was for anybody. And I spent the majority of that episode and I still will stand behind what I did, but I spent the majority of that, that episode explaining to her, if you try to market to everybody, nobody will hear you. You have to really have this clear understanding of who you are speaking to, um, to whom you are speaking. And I think that's part of the problem um yeah. part of the challenge of getting published when i what with my first agent i sat down with her and i said oh you know what what works what are you looking for and and you know the answer really is whatever sold last year but whatever sold last year is no here. longer current it's a good title for a book it's whatever the current best-selling um yeah book is and there's no real rhyme or reason to what sells i mean i think quality matters an incredible amount good writing will out i really believe that but um the idea i mean and i i definitely have been guilty of this of trying to write for quote commercial audience or commercial agent or commercial publisher it definitely dilutes your effort and in the end it's it's um very undermining it's not going to help make your writing better yeah oh there's so many places i'm gonna i'm gonna stay with emotion right now because i think that it's a a a real key for what we're trying to do as authors and i have learned more over the past few months since my interview with parastu that tells me this is the truth and like i said everything i said to her i stand behind but there is a new nuance that i'm starting to understand about finding a reader and it's the emotional connection um it's, there's there's easy ways to tell stories. So I will tell my story this way. Uh, one of the first podcasts that I deeply connected with was Dax Shepard's Armchair Expert. Really love that show. I think that his curiosity about the world is great. And his struggle with masculinity really um, connects with me. And so there's just this perfect emotional connection. When I listen to him, he almost feels like an avatar for me as a person. As he explores the world, I feel like he's brave for me sometimes. Um, and when he fails my sense of academic rigor, I'm angry at myself in his place. And so that's the emotional connection that we want to uh, create with our our reader. Because when you do that, then when he starts talking about um, a, uh, well, now I've, now I've forgotten the van, so I'm kind of like ruining the the climax of the story. But he was advertising for a particular brand of van that he used to drive, and I almost bought a van based on his advertising of it because I liked him so much that I almost forgot for a minute that he was doing that. That's the power of emotion. That's really interesting. And when I first started writing um, and people said, like, what are you interested in? I mean, my answer was love and death, which is actually what I'm interested in. But those are pretty yeah. big topics. Yeah, we, we would be friends. I'm, I'm pretty sure, actually. <laughs> um, but I do feel I, I, I'd be happy if I ripped your heart out. I thought that a lot about this book, that it's, it's meant to rip your heart out. Mm-hmm. And I want to have that in my reading experience or when I go to the movies or, you know, that's what I think we, and humans are emotional people. I think we kind of want that. Yes, absolutely. So I, let me, and this is a totally random, almost non sequitur, but not quite. Uh, if a character in a movie is supposed to die and then in the end they, they are revealed to still be alive. Does that upset you? Cause that drives me insane. (laughs) That's really interesting. (laughs) 
So I'm not sure if I go to enough movies to say it, but sometimes yeah. I feel like that's that can be cheesy. It can be really yeah. cheesy. And one of the most interesting reactions I did not expect, I didn't know what to expect. I hadn't published a book before. But um, I would say there's a bit of a surprise ending in my book or an unexpected mm. ending. And that has been the biggest comment from readers. Really? Is, yes. They like okay. the ending. Um, it's not... I, I can't say more about it because I don't want to do spoilers. Sure, but yeah, please don't. I'm really happy that um, they were connected enough with the book that the ending they were they were taken in and um, rode with it, even if it's not mm. what they were expecting. Yeah, I like that. I really enjoy that. I um, my novel that is going to be coming out in September is a bit like that, where it was inevitable. And yet at the same time, a little bit surprising, even to myself that I, I, I landed there. It hooked my agent. She held onto this novel for three years and loved it. I had to, I had to actually fire her because she wanted to hold it and figure out how to sell it. She liked it that much. And she's represented some really great authors. So it was like this. I don't know. I was talking to my wife earlier this morning and saying, did I make the wrong choice? But I don't, I don't think so. Um, surprise endings are great. And when, when you have this sense of like inevitability that you wrote this story and, and when, when your readers reflect that back to you, that must feel really good. It's wonderful. So let, let me just ask, what's the name of your novel? It's coming out in September. Yeah, it's uh, the Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi, and I will I will spell that out in an email to you so that you don't have to worry about spelling it here. But uh, yeah, it's um, it was interestingly one of those novels that uh, all the things you were mentioning, I was uh, ruminating on, thinking I want to write something a little more commercial than things I've written in the past. I wrote metafiction. I was in an MFA. I I like love David Foster Wallace and Dennis Johnson and people that are a little tough to digest, which I still adore those uh, men. But uh, I thought I need to write something that's more accessible to to break down the door. And I think I did a good job. But I also do realize if you try to write inside a genre and your heart is kind of literary in, in general, boy, it's it's tough to fit the framework. Have you had that experience that you mentioned earlier, the kind of commercial impulse to satisfy that itch uh, of, of getting published? Did you find that when you tried to do it, it broke because you were so focused yeah, on character? I mean, I the answer is I really can't do it. And yeah. I had an early instructor, Paul Harding. Um, I went right. to yes. Writer's so Workshop in 2012. That's the, really the most important classroom I've ever been in. It was only five days. And wow. I learned so much from him. And he had this theory, you write to your highest level reader, don't dumb it down. And yeah. that's really what I feel. Um, I didn't and I did it on purpose. I didn't explain a lot of ballet terms because I wanted this totally immersive um, experience for the reader. And I've yeah. had a lot of people say to me, wow, I've never been to a ballet. I don't even care about ballet, but I love this book, which is what you want. You want, yes. to, you want to surround them with this. Um, I mean, I've read so many books where I didn't know anything about the material. It didn't really matter because yeah. – writing was interesting. Absolutely. That's, I mean, you're, you're, you're circling back again to the idea that genre is not what we care about. Um, right. What we, what we really care about is how it affects us. It's the people that people, right. the novel, that's what's it's so like any, good. It's like any kind of relationship. I mean, I, I, the other relationship story that I find interesting is 
I got early advice to tell my story chronologically and mm. it just wasn't working. So I ended up cutting wow. it out and telling it out of order. And my thought there was, you know, I haven't met you. We just had one discussion before I got on. You don't get a linear recitation no. of somebody's whole life history. When you, right. meet it, you learn it in patches. Yes. And I feel that way about our characters too. It's not, mm. Too much backstory is maybe a bit boring and the reader might be able to fill it in, but at any rate, it's we don't learn it we don't learn other people's lives sequentially when we meet them in person. Yeah. Tony Morrison is somebody I think that really embraces that idea of non-sequential storytelling. And mm-hmm. um she's rightfully praised for her ability to dip into and out of uh reflections and history and all of those kind of things. It's somewhat challenging. How did you, how do you feel like you attacked um, the ability to flash back and flash forward? Uh, was it a learned skill or do you feel like it came naturally? No, it was absolutely learned and it took yeah. years of struggle. I mean, one thing I did was probably cut a hundred pages of backstory. And this was very far along, like six years in. I started writing this in 2010 and the backstory was very important to me, but um, it was clearly slowing down the plot. And I also worried a bit about stereotyping in the backstory. For example, um, the mother of Katya, the ballerina, is an alcoholic. And I thought my discussions that were kind of too tropey, basically, yeah. <laughs> too much like regular tropes. Yeah. Um, so what I did, I the, my word for this is splice. Like in the old days when you would splice film, I feel like start in the present and then mm. as Paul Harding used to say backstory as needed splice in backstory as it is affecting the character you sometimes have characters speaking and then you take a phrase from what they are um talking about to have their memories jogged and um what they're thinking about about their own backstories so I I spliced in the backstory as I went along yeah. So I was just double checking. Uh, 2009. He published it in 2009. The reason it's so amazing what you just said is he he actually delivered a talk. I, I don't think it was uh, considered a podcast at that point, but he talked about uh, his largest struggle as a writer was the ability to get like the story on the page because he got bogged down in research and getting the details in there. I don't know if he talked about that, but that, what you were just saying made me think I have to look at when he published this because yeah. it's it's Paul three years down the road from when he published Tinkers, which is probably Paul three years down the road from when he started the journey to write Tinkers and his ability to learn that and then teach that to you. That's a pretty cool thing that, that yeah, we can do. Yeah, I mean... He had, I type, I took really good notes and then I typed it up afterward. And I, I have this piece of paper, this 35 maxims from Paul Harding. But basically, um, there were so many things he said so interesting about novels, about how each novel basically develops its own structure. And so you as the writer have to be inventing not only the story, but the structure itself. And I'm kind of a structure maniac, even though I... I couldn't have told you what the structure would be when I started. I didn't outline it. I had to figure out the structure as I was going along. Yeah. Novel writing is a little bit like going insane um, and trying to plan your way out of it. <laughs> it's true. And it's so uh, woo-woo when you talk to people. You know, what gets yeah. left on the cutting room floor? That John, who um, my, the main character who survives the Holocaust by – 
singing for the commandant who murders his family. And so mm. he has this really fraught relationship with music and song. It um, saved his life and also destroyed his life. And then he falls in love with a ballerina who can't work without music. So that's a pretty big dilemma. Um, but the reason I brought this up is um, to just get in his head and try to think about what was going on and get your characters to talk to you. And early on, I thought he should have children. And I started writing the children and they started taking over the novel. Mm, so I yes. had to get rid of them. And I literally oh, had no. to kill my darlings. Yes. He yep. couldn't be married. He couldn't have children. So then those poor kids ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I'm curious. I don't have this conversation very often. Like, like I, I think I talked before we started recording about how the podcast is going in a different direction. So I'm just going to pursue some of my fancies at the moment. But um, I am notoriously a, a rewriter. And when I talk about rewrite, what I mean is whatever story I wrote, I delete it and start again. So the, the framework is in my head. And then I just build from the ground up again. Um, what's your process? That, that's extraordinary. And I definitely have heard that. Oh, that would kill me. But I, I do start at the beginning. And um, usually my first drafts are thin. So one thing I have to do is fatten stuff out. I just talked about mm. taking out backstory, but I need to fatten up like, what are the characters thinking? What are they feeling? What what's actually going on? Um, I I've done massive rewrites of everything I've ever written. Three muses had probably eight or nine big big rewrites. Yeah. Uh, another thing I did was um, I there is enough backstory that we see both Katya and John as children, and I had to really ditch what I had done and get into their heads and think about how a child sees the world, which is sometimes much more narrowly than we see it as adults. They, they sometimes only process what's directly around them in terms of what's happening to them. So yeah. John, for example, doesn't understand that his mother and brother were murdered, even though he's living in the camp and he's confined mm -hmm. and he doesn't realize, he just expects them to come back at some point. Yeah. Um, so I did a lot of getting into their heads and then toward the end, Basically, I have to look at every word to make sure that it's in service of the story. No extraneous things. Cut the repetitions. Yeah. Cut all the bad words like never, always, some, yes. all the all the gushy, non-specific words. So I'm pretty rigorous on rewrites. What what an what an absolute delight to have you as a transition guest for me because these are things I literally have never talked about on the podcast that are so dear to my heart. Oh, um, that's great. I've, so I've, listen, am I allowed to ask you a question? Like how, since you've been here for a year, how do you see the pod, podcast, excuse me, the podcast as having progressed? Oh, well, I'm going to try to give you the really short version. Um, I just had this idea of a place where there was going to be a, a creative, collaborative, artistic community. I knew that the only way that artists could succeed was to work together to achieve their their goals. And so I thought I'm going to start this podcast and my first idea was 
that I will have guests on and they will tell stories that they've never written. So it can be um, a shoe store owner or it can be uh, a bartender, whoever it is, tell their story and I will open it up to the community. People can vote and decide which story should we move forward. And I will personally step in, help them write the story, publish it and get it out to the world. I thought this is a great idea. It is a good idea, but I don't have the resources to make it happen. And people are really stingy when it comes to sharing stories in that fashion, which makes sense. Um, so when I ran into the difficulties there, uh, I quickly decided, let me just get the biggest guests I can, because that must be like a good way to go. And nobody was listening. And so I spent a bunch of money to join a podcast group to tell me how to do things. And they did help in a small way to narrow my focus, but they kind of sent me on the wrong target because they were worried about money. So I was like, okay, this is a show about marketing. I love marketing. I've always been a good salesperson. However, at, at my heart is the conversation we're having right now. You know, this, this is, uh, if I can yeah. get a reader and a reader to connect emotionally with what I'm writing, I believe the rest will take care of itself. And so I'm having yeah. kind of a rebirth moment right now where that's the evolution. And I hope I kept it short enough for you. <laughs> you know, that's great. And I think that's, you know, writing is particularly an art where I, I know we can get a degree in it, but it is so much oh. about apprentice, your apprenticeship with yourself and, um, holding yourself to rigorous standards. Yes. Um, and I feel like, you know, in some ways I feel like maybe I got an agent too early back in the early 2000s. Mm. I been writing a year or two. Um, and maybe I had to go through those 20 years of apprenticeship so I could know yeah. what I was doing somewhat. I mean, the problem is once you've written a novel, whenever you start your next one, it's going to be a totally different experience. I know. So, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> So one thing, and I agree with you, I've never, I've never had a, just an easy run through a novel. I've written a first draft pretty quickly and been happy enough to kind of let it age. Um, mm -hmm. What I am curious about is in these 20 years from 1999 to 2019 and beyond, uh, how much, uh, two, two, two things, how much desperation was there to just finally break through? How many nights do you feel like you went to bed just thinking, when is it my turn? And uh, how much did you think maybe I should just give this up? Like the pain is too much. Those two things, because one is desperation and the other is doubt in talent. And they're two very different things that maybe manifest similarly. I mean, I had all those things a lot. I was saved, I think, by having a full-time job in social justice where fortunately, yeah. I loved what I was doing and I we were I was working on anti-death penalty work, criminal wow. justice and homelessness and I felt like that was a place where I feel felt I had a lot of meaning in my life and I met incredible people and um you know I had friends who kept saying you should write full time and I was like no because I cannot sustain this level of rejection. I can't sustain it. Yeah. So I had tremendous despair and a lot of days when I was like, why am I doing this? I'm like banging my head against the wall. Why don't I stop doing it? But yeah. I never stopped. So um, that just, I mean, I could be as depressed as I wanted, but I still was writing. That was so weird. Yeah. And that is really, was really new to me in my life. Mm. I've certainly had other things that didn't work out, but I just kept writing. And I thought, well, and people would say, well, it's about the journey. I'm like, no, 
it's really about getting published. I mean, yes. I really want people to read my stuff. So yes. I was in despair a lot. I had sleepless lights, nights a lot. I, mm-hmm. I left no stone unturned. I asked everybody in my life and everybody I didn't know for help. And the fact of the matter is I got a lot of help and it still didn't make a difference. So, you know, some people say when the universe lines up, your work will get out. I'm not really from that school, but I I kind of do believe it a little. I feel like maybe my time was now and it wasn't earlier. I don't really know. Yeah. Stephen Pressfield uh, just interviewed with, with, um, Tim Ferriss. So he he's talking with Tim and Tim asked him, um, like, is it is it possible for someone to achieve great success without going through the desert? Which I, I take that to actually be kind of a biblical metaphor in that case. Um I I just simply don't believe that it can. I think of the 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 young lady who was published in the New Yorker for the the cat story. Um yeah. And she got a seven-figure book deal. Mm-hmm. She's actually in the desert right now. And this is a editorial interruption just to give you some context on Cat Person, written by Kristen Rupinian. In 2017, it was published by The New Yorker and got her a $1.2 million advance on a book that she published. Uh, the bidding war was huge. The book was received kind of like a rotten tomato on stage at the Shakespeare Festival thingy. So really difficult times for her followed. I think she's recovered at this point. So it may be more accurate to say she was in the desert. But anyway, the point stands. Mm -hmm. You know, she had an amazing entry, but now she is so deeply maligned for for not being able to reproduce that level of. Yeah, I I was actually going to go there. The first thing is, I don't think I could have withstood this level of rejection in my 20s and and the rejection is amorphous it's, it doesn't make any sense it's not it's very non-descript but it's also and you know not getting your emails returned and no there's no time frame i wrote a piece i, I actually called um unlearning the law about which is on my website about you know the difference between if publishing is not like anything else except um I call it getting your you know kitchen contractors where they, it doesn't matter what there's no time frame they take out your kitchen and walk off for two years you know but <laughs> yeah. I just I mean yeah I'll, you know this I'll be back to you after the weekend and I'm like wow it's six months later and I haven't heard from you whatever mm-hmm. I just feel like the time it's it's a completely different world and the thing that saved me ultimately and it took me years I would say 15 12 15 years to get here is a really internal recognition that rejection is normal the norm in, yeah. in trying to get published is is being rejected so if you get an acceptance it's a rare wonderful thing but to expect only rejections and i like that advice to get 100 rejections a year i think it makes a yeah. lot of sense um and it just took me a long long time to get there um and yeah. that it's not personal or even if it feels personal because you wrote it but it's just mm-hmm. um, and, and i was going to go where you went which is i do have some younger friends who have had spectacular success like the yeah. woman who wrote the cat story and that yeah. can be crippling absolutely crippling 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's your next act, you know? Exactly. How do you follow that up? And I, I yeah. see that when that happens, there are some people who have, have come out of that and, and, um, found a really profound second movement and the very mm-hmm. occasional person who just seems to be gifted with everything they need from the moment they appear. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. all the research that you do and then, then that they're just like the real deal. But, uh, yeah. I think, I think for me, and it sounds like for you as well, that the, um, the best course to plot is to put in the work every day in a way that's meaningful and consistent and true to your ideals. I think that's tr- absolutely true. And then I did something which was also life-saving for me. And I don't know what the analog is for other people. I I mean, the l- one life-saving thing was recognizing that rejection is normal. Yeah. Uh, the second is I love books so much and I started reviewing books and Ooh, okay. that did a lot for me. Um, first of all, I love sharing books that I read. It was a wonderful mm-hmm. opportunity um, and it was a great feeling to get published. And in some ways it kept me oh, safe. Yeah. I had a byline pretty frequently once I started reviewing. So it was it was very reassuring on some level that I could get published. I just wasn't getting my fiction published. And yeah. the third thing that it did for me is I'm quite assiduous in seeking out what I review. So a lot of independent publishers, a lot of mm-hmm. people of color, a lot of women. I felt like I maybe could help um, bring to light books that – I may not get the same level of attention as as other books get. So that yeah. gave me kind of a mission. And that was really, really very dispositive for me. Mm. There's a part of me that wants to dive into that why question right now, because that is <laughs> sort of the doorstep you just brought us to is when you when you understand why you're doing what you're doing, all the rejection and all of the the dismissal in the world can't touch you because you're so clear on why you're doing what you're doing. Well, um, I'm I'm going to interrupt and say yeah. um, I can go there. I never want to ask that question. <laughs> I, I'm afraid of yeah. it because I'm afraid of the the juices being shut off. So yeah. I'm not one of these people that thinks about it. I don't want to know why. I just I just yeah. know that I'm in the zone and I like it. <laughs> right, I hear you. I I kind of dabble in both places. Um, Questlove is the one who said, uh, it, you know, when you're searching for why, and I'm paraphrasing, so sorry if you happen to be listening in some <laughs> alternate universe. <laughs> uh, he's, he's basically like, if you want an answer, uh, you just have to sit in the dark long enough uh, that the answer comes to you. And when you're tired, you just stand up and walk out of the darkness. It It makes it sound so much easier than it is. But at the same time, you understand coming from a man like him, that it was a hard fought message. That's the interesting thing totally. about these really difficult moments. Totally. And the other expression that I love, it's a French expression called the spirit of the staircase, which is you're shut up in your garret and you're writing, 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 and then it's a really bad day. And then you walk down the steps and then you know what you're talking about. I mean, in some ways, I think that the solutions to writing problems um, or you're stuck on a certain paragraph, they often don't come while you're in front of the page. You sometimes mm. have to take a break and be on the steps, leaving your study or whatever, wherever I love you're that. to get yeah. the idea. 
I love that. There's a challenge in that. Uh, it happened to me last night. So um, having been sick for the past three days, uh, the first night I was the sickest and I went to bed and my wife was like, I didn't get any sleep because you were moaning all night. Even when you appeared to be asleep, you were just moaning. Um, but for me, there was a lot of mental activity going on that night about how to solve a problem that I'm working through right now. Uh, and then last, not last night, the night before I had some reprieve, but last night, I, I didn't fall asleep in any fashion until about three in the morning. My mind is just <laughs> working through a problem, right? Yeah. But that's that's the thing is that sometimes you're working through a problem. And I can't tell you how many times last night I thought, why don't I just get up and walk over to the computer? It's literally four steps from my bed to my office. All I got to do is just walk <laughs> over here and start typing this down because I know my mind won't be in the same place when I wake up. I won't be as inspired. I won't be as like moved and uh, assertive. And it's absolutely true. I lost like the core of it because I was just fighting to sleep. Um, Yeah. I have learned to do that. I I also write very near where I sleep and I just write these, get up in the middle of the night and write like three words. So I'll remember, I feel like I, I once lost a whole novel. I just never come back. Yeah. Just a weird thing to say, but I'm pretty convinced I lost a whole book. (laughs) Oh no. Yeah. It's brutal. Yep. Well, the good thing is too, and um, this is a good place to to start working our way toward a landing, um, is that we are beings of limitless creativity. And so uh, if we lose a novel like Hemingway did on the train, um, or many, many other great authors have lost novels when their houses burned down or their laptops got dropped out of a car or whatever crazy thing might have happened, we have endless stories to tell. And that's the fun evolution of this podcast is that in in 2023, um, every guest that I have on is going to tell a fresh new story that they've never thought about before. And we're going to have an act of creation together uh, right there for everybody to witness. And it might be a train wreck, but it's going to be a lot of fun. I love that. I love you don't know if you don't try, right? <laughs> I, I know, exactly. So what I want to do is is kind of hand it over to you now to talk a little bit about The Three Muses, to say what you'd like to say about the book, to entice people to read it. Obviously, I've already got a copy on hold at my library, and I would be remiss not to mention that if you want to get a copy of the book and you don't feel you can afford it, libraries are a great place to go, and you can support your community by getting the book there. So don't let your finances stand in the way of reading Three Muses. Thank you. Um, and also my public library, and I think probably your public library will, you can make a request if they don't have it to, for them to yes. purchase it. I'm a total public library geek fan, yes. cheerleader girl. I love them. Three Muses is based on um, a love story, as I said, between a ballerina and a Holocaust survivor. The ballerina is involved in a difficult abusive, but also hugely creative relationship with her choreographer, Boris Yanikov. And when John falls in love with her, he doesn't know anything about this. He he just sees her as a beautiful ballerina. The three muses of the title come from a region of Boeotia in Greece, and they are song, discipline, and memory. And I found them by accident. And I felt like those are the things that I write about. It felt like this huge gift from the universe when I found them. John is very loosely associated with song. Kutch is very loosely associated with discipline. And memory is the most important of the muses. Partly, it has many meanings in my book. Mm. As a Jewish person, um, we talk a lot about our collective memory. We're not a people that builds 
uh, buildings and has monuments. Um, we have survived in large part by holding our collective memory and telling stories forward. So that's one piece of memory. Another aspect of memory is that as a writer, memory is a tremendous wellspring for us um, in terms of thinking about the themes we want to write about, even if it's not the actual autobiographical details. And third of all, memory drives all of us. Sometimes you're spending your whole life avoiding your memory, and sometimes you're spending your whole life trying to reframe it. But so there's a lot of these ideas that are very human to us about how to navigate a love story between two very um, traumatized people. Katya was traumatized as a child by losing her mother in an accident and how they come together and where we find understanding and how we live with trauma in our lives. And also, what does love mean? There's a lot about that. What kind of love do we want in our lives and what does it mean? So it has many, many themes um, and also a lot of music and dance in it. <laughs> awesome. Love and death. They're such beautiful things. Like I said earlier, I think that you and I can be friends because love and death are at the center of everything that I work on. <laughs> Uh, strange for being not quite 40 yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was that way when I was born. So what can I say? <laughs> it just carries with you. I do think so too, for me. Um, last thing is uh, because you know, Paul, I wanted to see, are you familiar with a gentleman named Greg Spatz? I reviewed his book. For awesome. He's, he has a book about music. Yes, yeah, and he's a I fiddle know player. I think, Jody, before we talked, I have one of my closest friends in Washington is a graduate of Eastern Washington University. Oh, awesome. And okay. He also had him. So if you check out NPR in his book, you'll see my review. Well, so, yes, perfect. I do. Okay. I didn't know they knew each other, to be honest. Yes, Paul and Greg are good friends. Uh, so Greg was at the uh, University of Iowa, or the Iowa Writers Workshop. Um, mm. He learned from Marilyn Robinson, and mm. um, he has some fun stories about her generally. Uh, mm. But I, the part of the reason I brought it up is if you are interested in doing something kind of just like a little bit out there, uh, I can connect you with Greg to possibly look into Get Lit is their literary festival that they do. Uh, it might be right up your alley. So. I would love to. I mean, I I think he knows who I am because I got him an book, I guarantee he knows who you are. Oh, that's so cool. Yes. That's really okay. cool. Well, perfect. Let me connect the two of you. I'll be pleased to do that. And uh, let's keep in touch. Okay. I can't thank you enough. And best of luck. I can't wait to see how things go going Thanks. forward. Thank you yeah. so much. You too. Thank okay. You. Have a wonderful holiday. You too. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a big favor right now. Click on the follow button in whatever podcast app you're listening on. That way you'll get notifications every time I drop a new episode. And if you still can't get enough, you can go to the show notes, click the link for my newsletter, and sign up today. I'll give you one to two interesting pieces of content every single month that you won't hear on the podcast or find laying around on the internet.